You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the murder in room 1046. Hello and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here with you today to discuss our mutual love for all things true crime. Um, I also just wanted to say thank you for all of your positive feedback on last week's episode. I am so happy that a lot of you found it so humorous that I was once the founder and leader of an anarchist group dealing with bombs. And if that doesn't make sense to you and you're feeling a little afraid, then you need to go back and listen to the latest episode and it will clear things up. (laughs) All I know is that the next time I play Two Truths and a Lie, I certainly know what one of my unexpected truths will be and I have a feeling that no one's going to guess it. Um, Before we talk about today's titillating topic, I um, noticed that things around here have been looking a tad dusty. The dishes have been piling up and there's a bunch of crumbs on the floor. Yeah, that's right. It's time to do a little housekeeping. Um, If you didn't know, I have an Instagram where I post pics of the cases that we discuss. I also announce giveaways and pop in on stories from time to time. You can send me a case suggestion there. Um, If you'd like to hang out, you can do so at Mystery Still Unsolved. If you prefer the World Wide Web for your sources of information, well, then feel free to visit my site. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge my now 105 episodes. I know, it's freaking crazy. While you're there, check out my merch. Um, I'm placing an order for shirts this weekend, so like tomorrow and the next day. So this is your final call. Forgetting a shirt before mid-July. Don't say I didn't warn you because I've been mentioned on the podcast a ton. I also have stickers and those I have on hand. So you can order a sticker today and it's going to be headed to the post office in like a day. Um, I do also have a patron program that I will link in the show notes. There you can donate monetarily to the podcast and get a bonus episode each and every month. Speaking of which, I need to announce that we have a new patron. We have a crime scene investigator. Thank you, Ledesma0401. Welcome, welcome. I sure appreciate you and hope that you have enjoyed the bonus episode that I posted for March. Um, And I will be in touch with you to get your complimentary sticker and your coupon code for 15% off merch. Okay, I think that that is it for housekeeping today. It certainly looks a bit more tidy, so that's a relief. Uh, Today I'm coming at you with another old-timey case, and it takes place in the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, So yeah, we're going to be... Oh my gosh, (laughs) hold on. I almost forgot. Um, When I was going over my podcast stats the other day, it's kind of fun because it breaks it down into like my listenership, and it will tell me like, you know... 80% of your listenership comes from the United States. 4% comes from the Netherlands, which is super cool. Holla at you, Netherlands. Um, But then it takes it a step further for the United States, and you can, like, break it down into state. And I saw that most of my listenership comes from the great state of Missouri. 
And so I just wanted to give a huge shout out to all of my listeners from Missouri. And that's actually why I decided to cover this case today in celebration of my Missouri listeners. So thank you, Missouri listeners, for making me feel like kind of a big deal. You're the best. Okay, I digress. The hotel president was a hot spot, particularly its lounge. Its lounge had offered the soulful voice of old blue eyes, aka Frank Sinatra. It had also hosted uh, Benny Goodman and Marilyn May. It had been the headquarters for the 1926 Republican convention, but surprisingly, those things are not what this hotel would become famous for. No, no, no. This hotel would become famous for holding a different type of reputation, an unsolved murder. Um, around 10.30 on the morning of January 5th, 1935, a bellboy named Probst, that's his last name, begrudgingly made the journey from the lobby back upstairs to room 1046. This had not been Probst's first time going up there, but he certainly hoped it would be the last. You see, he had already been up there around 8 a.m. for a similar issue. The resident of 1046 had his phone off the hook, but it wasn't in use, and a manager had sent him up there to get him to put their guest's phone back on the receiver. Now, just a little over two hours later, Probst was at it again. He knocked on the door, no answer. Last time, Probst hadn't had a key. But this time he did, and he was determined to get to the bottom of this mystery. He opened the door to the room. The room was dark. Only the faint light from the hallway seeped into the room. It wasn't much, but it was enough to illuminate the horrifying scene awaiting him. The hotel room was covered in red splatter marks. The bathroom, the carpet, the walls, the ceiling. It truly was a bloodbath. And then just feet from the open door was the guest who had been staying in room 1046. He was naked and bloodied, crouched over on the floor with his head in his hands. Probst ran downstairs to get help. When help returned, they tried to open the door, but it was jammed. You see, the guest must have still been alive, and he had tried to make it to the door for aid, only to pass out right in front of it. With some muscle and gentle coaxing to the man inside, they were finally able to get in. Cops and doctors immediately got to work. Doctors noticed that the guest had extensive injuries. His hands and feet had been bound. He had also been bound around his neck with a cord. He had suffered multiple blows to the head and also three stab wounds in his chest, one even puncturing his left lung. The doctors and detectives could see that the guest was going in and out of consciousness, and they needed to get something out of him to help their investigation. Who did this to you? Who was in the room, they asked. The man would only repeat one word before succumbing to a coma. Nobody. 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 Okay, so obviously this wasn't true. There is no way that this man stabbed himself three times, bludgeoned his own head, and then bound his own hands and feet. Oh, and don't forget he'd also been strangled with a cord. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody's believing that. Especially since there was no sign of a weapon in the room. So this quickly ruled out suicide or any type of injury that was self-inflicted. But workers at the hotel also knew that this was a lie because this guest had been a little bit strange. 
one might even say a tad bit unruly. On January 2nd, Roland T. Owen checked himself into the hotel president. When our friend the bellboy named Probst arrived to usher Roland to his room, he was surprised that Roland carried no luggage. Where are your bags? he asked. Roland answered by saying, I like to travel light. How light? Real light. Once Probst opened the door for him, Roland went into the bathroom and took a comb, a toothbrush, and toothpaste out of his pockets and put them on the bathroom counter. He then excused himself from the room, and later the bellboy left too. A few hours later, Mary Sopdick, a maid at the hotel president, entered the room. She was a little weirded out because Roland was there. Um, he was sitting in the corner of the room in a chair with a single dim lamp on. Oh, you startled me, exclaimed Mary. Would you like me to come back later, she asked. Roland said no. It was fine. She could clean. They engaged in a brief exchange of small talk. Mary learned that his name was Roland and that he had been staying at several hotels in the area lately, but they had all been a little bit too expensive, so he decided to try the hotel president out. As she cleaned, Mary noticed that Roland had a large, unsightly scar on his left temple and a cauliflower ear on the same side. Perhaps this is why he preferred to remain in the dark. Mary took soiled towels and told Roland that she would return later that day to supply him with fresh ones. He thanked her and asked her to leave the door unlocked as she left because he was expecting a visitor soon. Several hours later, Mary returned with fresh towels. As she approached the door of room 1046, she could hear two distinct voices inside. She knocked on the door. The voices hushed, but no one answered. She knocked again. This time, a voice that differed from Roland's and that it was deeper and gruffer responded, Who is it? It's Mary, the maid, here with some fresh towels for you, sir. We don't need any. Even though Mary knew that was a lie, she left. Obviously, Roland and whoever it was that he was in the room with didn't want to be disturbed. The following day, Mary returned to clean the room and finally get Roland some of those dang fresh towels. When she approached the door, she noted that the door had been locked from the outside. Oh, he must be out, she thought, as she reached into her pocket for the master key. Imagine her surprise when Roland was actually inside the room, lying on top of the bed, fully dressed in a suit and shoes. Oh my gosh, you startled me, sir, she said. It's becoming a habit, responded Roland. She thought about asking him why he had been locked inside of the room, but decided against it and got to work cleaning. While cleaning the bathroom, the phone rang. Roland answered it. Mary later recalled to police that the conversation went as follows. No, Don, I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Then a brief pause. Don, I said I'm not hungry. Then the call ended. She finished cleaning and left. That was the last time that Mary Soptic would see Roland alive. Later that night, there was a party on the same floor as room 1046, which is why when detectives spoke to the guests on either side of the room and asked if they had heard anything suspicious, they couldn't be too sure. They said at one point they had heard two men and a woman arguing and cursing, but they couldn't be sure if it was coming from next door or the party that was just a few doors down. A few peculiar things to mention the night before Roland was found was that a commercial woman, which I have come to find out is a 1930s way of saying someone is a sex worker, um, without coming right out and saying that someone is a sex worker, arrived at the hotel. 
and she was looking for a client in room 1026. The hotel staff was familiar with this commercial woman as she often came to the hotel to entertain various male guests. The woman said one of her regulars wasn't answering the door, and that was unusual because he had never stiffed her before. There are some people who speculate and wonder if she was actually looking for the man in room 1046 and just had her numbers mixed up. Another peculiar sighting happened one street behind the hotel. It was a little after 3 a.m. on January 5th, the witching hours. Nothing good ever happens at 3 a.m. Have you ever watched Paranormal Activity? If you have, then you know. I digress. I had a squirrel moment. Sorry about that. Um, A gentleman was driving his car when he saw something strange. A man dressed in nothing but his underwear and undershirt was flagging his car down. The gentleman stopped his car and the man got in and rattled off an address. The man then became a bit sheepish when the gentleman informed him, Sorry, uh, this isn't a taxi. Oh, I'm so sorry, the man said, preparing to get out. The gentleman driving the car felt bad. After all, it was early morning on January 5th in Kansas City, Missouri. It was freezing. The gentleman offered to drive him to the taxi center so that he wouldn't have to walk in his underwear in this weather. He recalled that the man seemed scattered, nervous. He kept looking out the rear window and muttering to himself. And the gentleman driving thought he may have heard him at one point say something along the lines of, I'm going to kill him in the morning. Could this have been the man who brutally attacked Roland? To make matters more strange, let's go back to where we started. That bizarre phone being off the hook debacle. At 8 a.m. on January 5th, the morning hotel staff came in for their shift. Someone monitoring the phones noticed that the phone in room 1046 wasn't in use, but it appeared to have been off the hook for several hours. This is where our bellboy Probst went to 1046 for the first time that morning. Probst knocked on the door. He heard someone say, come in. When he attempted to open the door, he noticed that it was locked from the inside and he didn't have his key with him. So he knocked again. Again, someone from inside responded, come in and turn on the lights. After some back and forth, Probst got annoyed and yelled, just put the phone back on the receiver. And he stormed off. I mean, can you really blame him? Can you imagine what these hotel workers are dealing with on a daily basis? People on vacation are the worst. (laughs) Okay, I guess I should say some people on vacation are the worst. Because, I mean, some people like suddenly feel like royalty for once in their wretched and pathetic lives and can constantly call down to the front desk and be like, bellboy, fetch me this. Front desk, fetch me that. I need some fresh towels. Oh my gosh. Every single time that I'm at a hotel and I need to call the front desk to like ask them for something, I feel like such a burden and inconvenience. Like I'm inconveniencing them. I'm like, hi, um, oh my gosh, uh, I'm so sorry, but we need more toilet paper. So if you get a chance, I mean, we don't need it like right away, but can you like send some up again? I am so sorry for breathing and existing, but when you have a second though, okay, okay, sorry. Okay. Goodbye. (laughs) I have issues. I need to go to a therapist. Okay. But back to our case. About an hour later, the person managing the phones noticed that the phone in room 1046 was still off the hook and not in a 90s, early 2000s way. Um, Probst was like, I'm not dealing with this shit again. And another bellboy went in his place. This time, this bellboy had a key. The bellboy knocked, nothing. 
He tried to open the door. Locked. So he unlocked the door and he went in. Inside, all of the lights in the room went off, but the bellboy could tell the room was in some sort of disarray. The nightstand where the phone should be was knocked over, and sure enough, that frickin' phone was off the hook. The the bellboy fixed the night table and placed the phone back on top. Roland was there. He was in his bed, lying on his stomach with his head to the side. The bellboy said it appeared that Mr. Owens was drunk. There were even some brown stains on the bed that the bellboy assumed at the time was some sort of alcohol. He discreetly left, locking the door behind him. This problem should be over now, right? Nope. You're wrong. One hour later, the person managing the phones noticed the phone in room 1046 was once again off its hook. And thus, we land right back where we started this episode, the gruesome discovery of Roland T. Owen's brutalized body. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, this is where the madness stops. Again, you're wrong. You're so wrong this episode. What's going on with you? You're really losing it. Um, When police contacted Los Angeles to try to notify Roland T. Owens, next of kin, of his untimely demise, they learned something interesting. Even though Roland, when he checked in, had said that he was visiting from Los Angeles, there was no person by the name of Roland T. Owens to ever exist in L.A. When the maid mentioned some of the other hotel hotels that Owens had told her that he had stayed at, they checked those out too, and they also brought a picture with them. Hotel staff at those hotels confirmed that, yes, he had been a guest at their hotel, but his name wasn't Roland T. Owens. It was Eugene K. Scott. He had been staying at the hotel with another man, a man by the name of Don. Do you remember Don? That's the one that was trying to give him breakfast, and Roland was like, no. When police attempted to find the next of kin of Mr. Eugene K. Scott, imagine their surprise when they discovered that that also was a phony name. They decided to put his picture in the paper, hoping to get someone, somewhere, to come out of the woodworks and identify him. And it didn't take long before someone did. A boxing coach came into the police department and said that this was a new boxer that he had been training and that his name was Cecil Evans. But it wasn't. After being looked into, detectives discovered that Roland T. Owens, Eugene K. Scott, and Cecil Evans were all aliases. But why would this dude need one? And who and where was this Don dude? After weeks of trying to put a name to this battered face, the morgue decided to bury him in a pauper's or potter's grave, basically a graveyard for people who, like, couldn't really afford anything. When these plans were published in the paper, the morgue received a suspicious call. A man called the morgue and said he would send money to have their John Doe buried in a Memorial Park cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas, so that his body would be closer to his sister. That's interesting. When pressed about how he knew the man, the man was quite candid. He said that the John Doe had been engaged to his sister, but he had cheated on her. He ended the call by saying, cheaters always get what they have coming to them. Later, wrapped in a bundle of newspaper and secretly delivered to the morgue was $25 in cash, just enough to have Roland T. Owens, or whoever the heck he was, buried at the preferred cemetery. On the morning of the funeral service, a floral delivery was sent to the funeral home. It was 13 red roses with a card that simply said, Love Always, 
Louise. Other than the priest, the morgue workers, and a dozen police officers, no one came to the service. Detectives disguised as grave diggers staked out the cemetery for two weeks, hoping someone would come to the gravestone of their victim. But no one ever showed. For a year and a half, this case grew colder and colder, until a local newspaper article was picked up by a national paper. This paper included a picture of their John Doe. Before long, a woman living in Birmingham, Alabama, named Ruby Ogletree, called detectives. She said she was positive that the boy pictured was her son. When pressed for further details, Ruby gave details about the man's body, including the scar on his left temple, his cauliflower ear, and a birthmark that had never been released to the public. Part of the mystery was solved. They now knew the name of their victim, 17-year-old Artemis Ogletree. But who had killed him and why? As they continued to speak to Ruby, they learned some startling news. Apparently, Artemis and his mother had kept contact through letters, and several of the letters the mother kept were postmarked after January 5th, 1935, after her son was murdered. Some were handwritten, and others using a typewriter. And that was the thing that kind of made Ruby's spider senses start to tingle. You see, her son Artemis had been a simple farm boy before he moved away. As far as she knew, Artemis didn't even know how to use a typewriter. Um, Artemis also used, like, plain language. He spoke plainly and directly, but the letters that she received postmarked after January 5th were more elaborate and more colloquial. Stranger still. I know, you're like, how can this get any weirder, Rochelle? I'm telling you, it's a weird case. That's why I wanted to cover it. Just a few months before Ruby saw her son's picture in the paper, she had received a phone call from a man claiming to know Artemis. He said that Artemis had saved his life and he just had to call and thank the mother of the wonderful son that he had raised. He told her that Artemis had met a beautiful and wealthy Egyptian woman and that he was moving to Cairo to marry and live there. Police looked to see if any of the names Artemis had been using had entered Egypt, but they came up with a dead end. At first, your gut instinct may be to presume this person is just like a sick SOB who gets his jollies messing with the family members of a victim, but Ruby insists that whoever this was had actually spent time with her son Artemis, as they had told her things about his childhood that only someone who knew him well would know. And then this is where the case gets frigid. After we learn his name, it's almost like we learn less about him. No one knows, or at least is coming forward, to share why Artemis was living under an alias. No one comes forward admitting to be the girlfriend or the supposed fiancé. No one knows why he was staying at three different hotels in Kansas City, Missouri. No one knows who this mysterious Dawn person he was traveling with is, or the commercial woman, or the man in his underwear. No one knows why someone would kill Artemis Ogletree. I'm curious to hear your thoughts and opinions regarding this case. There are so many twists and turns and weird, wacky facts that I don't even know where to start and what to believe. However, if you'll humor me, I would love to share my theory with you. So remember, I'm stepping on my Rochelle box. This may or may not be backed by facts. It's just my opinion and my theory. 
Okay. All right. So Artemis was a 17-year-old boy from middle of nowhere, Alabama. He left his home state to move to L.A., the dream of many back then and even now. Artemis was staying at some of the swankiest hotels Kansas City had to offer. Is it too preposterous to assume that maybe Artemis had gotten into something he perhaps shouldn't have? Maybe engaged in some sort of illegal activity with a high payout? What if Artemis saw something that he shouldn't have or got involved in something that he shouldn't have with a crime syndicate group and now they were after him? Maybe this Don fellow was protecting Artemis from someone, helping him to move from hotel to hotel under different names to kind of help him out. Then either he was discovered by the bad guys that he was hiding out from, or maybe Don found him to be more of a liability than an asset and had him killed or killed him himself. I think weirder theories have happened. The thing about this case that makes me sad and almost like sick to my stomach is the hours leading up to Artemis Ogletree's discovery by the bellboy. The medical technician said that Artemis's time of death was around 4 to 6 a.m. on the morning of January 5th, which means the first time Propes the bellhop went to tell him to hang up the phone at 8 a.m., Artemis was already in his room dying. When he told Propes to come in and turn on the light, this was probably a call for help. Hell, him leaving the phone off of the receiver was probably literally a failed attempt at trying to call for help. Then, when the second bellhop came in and noticed the brown stains on the bed, that wasn't alcohol. It was blood. Then, when bellhop Probst came up again, only to discover Artemis mere feet from the door with his head in his hands, oh my gosh, like, this poor man. He was literally trying to crawl his way to help, only to be stopped by his own blood loss and loss of consciousness. I, I don't know. I just feel so bad for him. He was so desperate for help, and there were so many times that someone could have intervened, but they didn't. It's almost like they were just checking on him every hour to be like, hey, just checking to make sure this isn't a super crappy situation. Are you dead yet? Nope. Okay, cool. We'll come back in an hour. And who knows, maybe he wouldn't have lived even if they would have gotten to him promptly at 8 a.m., but maybe they could have, or maybe they could have gotten more information out of him before he passed out. Poor Artemis. It makes me feel really sad. Let me know what you think about this case, and let me know on my Instagram at Unsolved. Don't forget to visit my website, www.MysterySillUnsolved, and make sure you place your pre-order for a t-shirt, because tomorrow night... I am going to be placing another order and I will not place another order after that until June 30th. So if you want your shirt before summertime, now is your chance. Um, if you want to learn more about the patron program, feel free to visit the link in my show notes. Do you want to know how to better support this podcast? Of course you do. Tell a true crime loving friend or family member about it, but don't feel limited to the term friends and family. Tell your barber, tell your DoorDash driver, or your esthetician. Tell that cop who pulls you over for speeding. I want everyone to know about Mysteries Still Unsolved. But the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery 
still unsolved.